Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Carolina Weather Group. This is the April 15th, 2020 edition of the Carolina Weather Weather Group Get Together. Uh, If you're tuning in tonight to uh, watch the April 16th, 2011 severe weather uh, look back, Sorry, we have a new one to talk about. Uh, as many of you know, uh, we experienced a uh, quite a bit of a severe weather event over the Carolinas on Monday, Sunday night into Monday. So tonight, uh, we are going to turn our attention to that. We have a whole host of guests on tonight. We have Rob Fowler on from Charleston, Ed Piotrowski on from Myrtle Beach, Shane Hilton on from New Bern, Brad Panovich on from Charlotte, Tim Buckley in Greensboro, Efren Afonso in Columbia, Kendra Kent in Greenville, South Carolina, and Brendan Goldner, a reporter at WCNT Charlotte. So we uh, really want to say our thank you to them publicly uh, because uh, we put this together at the last minute. So we're very happy to for everyone to kind of donate a little bit of time tonight to talk about this. Uh, we are live streaming, so if you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear about you if you uh, had experienced any of this storm throughout the past couple of uh, uh, days. So I'm going to toss it over to Brandon Goldner. Brandon, you've been out in the field reporting kind of the aftermath of the uh, the tornadoes. And something we've been talking about here on the Carolina Weather Group is the COVID-19 pandemic. And so uh, we've talked about storm chasing and doing severe weather coverage from home. Uh, I know that you uh, ran a little spot about the recovery efforts in COVID-19. I think we're going to dial that up and then uh, we'll toss it to Brandon and let him kind of uh, give us a few of his uh, remarks from his uh, story. Brian Morris. You want to carry that one, sir? Is an essential worker. Go out that way. Let's take it to the van. He's cleaning up this Gastonia sunroom after a tree slammed into it. One of five emergencies his company, Custom US, had to go to. It was kind of unique in that they were all very large trees, and that doesn't happen as as much. Well, it also doesn't happen as much cleaning up during a pandemic. Morris and his co-workers have to wear masks when going into people's homes. They also have to ask clients if they've been around anyone who's sick. We've been keeping the pace. Utility crews are also trying to keep the pace and restore power to nearly 39,000 customers. North Carolina Emergency Management Director Mike Sprayberry says the largest outages are in Mecklenburg, Anson, and Richmond counties. For families uprooted from their homes, the Red Cross's Robbie Sofali says volunteers are helping them virtually using platforms like FaceTime and Zoom to interview clients. We are an organization that really relies on interpersonal connections with with our clients and really trying to provide compassion and care. And It's a little difficult to do that right now, uh, but we're adapting and using some of those different digital uh, platforms. Family and friends helped Robbie Clark's parents clean up a tree that crashed through their Kannapolis home, all while following social distancing rules. I'm just hoping that everything gets sorted out pretty quick. All right, so uh, that was a report from Brendan Goner. Brendan, I'm going to bring you in. Uh, This is something we've been talking about, COVID-19, and how it's affected the weather enterprise. As you was out reporting, uh, talking to the folks, uh, what was it like uh, kind of in this new time that we're all experiencing? You know, it kind of it reminds you, you know, we're all talking all the time about reporting during the coronavirus. And yet, you know, Mother Nature, the weather doesn't care about pandemic. It's going to do its thing. And so, you know, obviously there's the challenges with us as a crew. It was me and uh, photojournalist Kevin Wardlaw. We have the six foot stick with the microphone at the end that we have to use to interview everyone. And uh, we have to keep that social distance. But was, what was really fascinating was talking to some of the disaster recovery uh, crew members, Duke Energy, the Red Cross, how a lot of them have had to change up a lot of what they're doing 
when it comes to cleaning up during the coronavirus, Duke Energy, they've been trying to do the social distancing, keeping the six feet distance, but when they're trying to repair power poles, a lot of times they have to be in close proximity. It's the same way with these disaster recovery people that was said in the beginning of the story, they're wearing the masks. They have to ask everyone before they go into a house whether they uh, were interacting with anyone with coronavirus. And it's the combination of all of the weather damage with having to deal with uh, the coronavirus. So it, it's, it's been really a double whammy for a lot of people. And so, you know, after disasters, we've seen it with the Nashville tornado, Jonesboro, uh, Arkansas tornado a couple weeks ago, uh, the community really comes together. How do you think that, uh, how, how is the community interacting with their neighbor? Neighbor helping neighbor. Uh, did you see any of that, even though we're in the midst it's of It's actually a good point. We didn't see nearly as many people outside as norm normally, especially there was uh, Monday we were at a, uh, there was a fire at a house caused by a tree that snapped power lines and then it went into a house, caused a fire, thankfully no injuries. But normally you'd see a lot of people out and about milling around asking for help, but really there weren't a lot of people out. A lot of people were just standing on their porches. A couple people wandering up, but keeping that six foot distance. But it's a good point. They're really, you really didn't see that huge scene, those huge crowds of people like we normally do and probably likely due to you know, COVID-19. Brendan, we appreciate that. Uh, we appreciate you joining Ooh. us tonight, giving us that perspective. Hang around if you want to. Uh, I'm going to toss it to Dan. And uh, Dan, we uh, you was out actually chasing this event. Maybe we can talk about that towards the end of the show. But I know you want to bring in one of our panel or one of our guests. Yeah. So um, talking kind of about some of the stronger tornadoes that hit there in South Carolina, um, I want to talk to to send it over to Rob there. Um, there were a couple of uh, significant tornadoes that hit, especially given the um, fact that this developed with um, not these ordinarily discrete supercells that would produce larger tornadoes, but they were um, within the the line there. Um, and especially we saw some interesting things like the Hampton County EF3, um, the uh, Walterboro uh, EF1s. Um, can you talk a little bit about that, Rob, that being in your area? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I've been here in Charleston for 33 years, and I certainly I've been through several tornado outbreaks, and I don't know how substantial compared to other parts of the country they are. We know uh, every tornado for us is very important because we don't get that many, so we don't really prepare that often for these. But uh, when we got here early on Monday morning to see what was going on in southeast Georgia, because these really started there and then crossed over the Savannah River and came all the way through eastern South Carolina. So to see uh, the debris ball in Hampton County, which officially the winds are 165, they finished that survey and released it today, but it's on the cusp of an EF4. And I think here in South Carolina since 1950, only 3% are EF3s and 1% EF4s. So you're talking about something very rare for us in a state that, depending on which service you look at, averages 12 tornadoes a year. Um, then obviously... Uh, for us here in, the, in our Channel 2 viewing area, Hampton County is more in the Savannah area. Our neighbors down at WSAV taking care of that, but that's still in our state. But then Colleton County is the next state over, or next county over. And then we really got concerned there, seeing what was going on in Hampton, transferred to Colleton County. Colleton County, that was released. There were three separate EF1 tornadoes there, one of them 110 miles an hour that if you saw the video, uh, did damage at the Low Country Regional Airport. 
Unfortunately, we had one fatality there. A tree came through a house and killed a lady there. And, uh, and then kept on moving into our more populated areas of uh, Dorchester, Berkeley, and Charleston counties. Had a separate tornado that moved, probably started as a water sprout, moved over Edisto Beach. And then they surveyed just a little while ago that Berkeley County, they released it. And that was an EF2 with the winds of 120 miles an hour. So, and then came into Ed's territory up into Georgetown County. We kind of share that. And they already had confirmed tornadoes up there. And I know Shea, weather flow, uh, you guys measured a wind gust of 114 miles an hour right there. So, uh, Dan, to put it, I, I don't know. I'm still shaking my head. I'll put it that way. Um, it was just something I've never seen before. And I've been through, you know, a lot of the hurricanes that produce tornadoes like Francis. But this was unbelievable. In Irma, we had four tornadoes in the Charleston area. But uh, I think we're all still shaking our heads. Okay. Yeah, well, and and. I was watching very closely on radar as that um, Hampton County tornado um, started showing up on radar in CC and also kind of the, the debris ball that was showing up there. I mean, that was a significant uh, signature on radar that, that you just don't often see in the Carolinas at all. It's something you generally see more in the deep south of Alabama, Mississippi, or, or in Oklahoma, Kansas, something along those lines. Um, you, you know, the damage report has it at least a half a mile of a width of that tornado. Um, fortunately, it seems like a lot of that did happen over rural areas, but that being one of the first tornadoes that happened um, in that early morning, did that kind of set a precedent for how you were responding to the other tornado warnings and potentially trying to get the message out to people who may have been asleep at this point, um, knowing that how, how huge these could be? Absolutely, Dan. I think here personally, um, yeah, myself, Josh Marthers, our morning meteorologist, I was kind of he was on the air on News 2. I was manning Facebook Live uh, for a long period of time. Uh, we know that's become a, a major way to get information out and get information in. But I think we were looking at that couplet, uh, which was we just don't get to see that on Velocity products very often here. And to see that uh, continue to hold together all the way across the state, absolutely. We were able to give warnings upstream. And I know it's a cliche, you know, people write in saying, hey, because we watched you, you probably saved our lives. But I think in this situation, it really co comes to play because we could show it. We could tell them we knew where it was going. We knew who might be impacted. And if we could give them any warning at all, uh, this was the case. Most of our tornadoes that happen could be a water spout. The couplet's not as well defined. It could be very broad in some cases. So this was really fine that I think it really prepped us for what we had to do for the rest of the morning. But I think probably the saving grace for all of us is the fact that uh, with the crisis going on, schools were not in session, people were not going to work, they were not on, in the car on the highways going from point A to point B. So if anything, I think we were able to reach a lot of people in their house and they could just hunker down right there. And Rob, also, I wanted to um, ask, you know, how was the uh, how was your response with your audience this early in the morning? This is really early, right? Uh, so a lot of folks I, just waking up, there's no commute, but we did get a couple of days of warning out for this yeah. event to start happening, right? So we kind of got the word out, but how do you feel folks responded to, to your... Um, I think the preparation was great. I, I, I love Marshall Shepard's tweet going into this. He said, I don't want to hear anything about this came out of nowhere. Or where did this come from? Uh, because I think the warnings were there. SBC did a fantastic job, and we tried to disseminate that information here to our viewers that, you know, we, we couldn't tell them exactly what was going to happen that Monday morning, but we knew that as time crunched a little bit, we felt more confident that 
something was going to happen and could potentially be a pretty significant outbreak. So I think our viewers uh, were well prepared and I haven't heard a single comment like, where did that come from? And I never knew that was coming. So I think they, they were listening and hopefully we were getting the information to them uh, as quickly and as, as succinctly as we possibly could. Efren, I'd love to hear your perspective on the Midlands, because unfortunately you guys saw the highest number of EF3s uh, as well as an EF2 that passed real close to Orangeburg and even, even over I-26. Uh, how has the community responded to all of these tornadoes um, and what kind of steps are y'all taking to recover? Well, the cleanup process right now has been um, incredible. There's been a lot of community help in this. And even with the coronavirus in which a lot of people are taking heed to that warning, there was a very large presence of people helping out. Now, the EF3 tornadoes that came through part of the CSRA, the Low Country, and to eventually our Southern Midlands community, those areas are very rural. Uh, and the fortunate thing was that we were already on the air at 4.30 in the morning. And there were a lot of storms that were crossing over the Savannah River into the upstate, but there was already a knowledge of all of our viewers since we've been talking about it in earnest since Friday that we're looking at the possibility of strong thunderstorms. That was the message on Friday. The message on Friday was like, there's, a, there's very likely going to be a severe weather outbreak of some sort in the lower Mississippi River Valley. That message usually is taken with a grain of salt because it's not us, it's not even near us. And as we got into Saturday, our morning meteorologist, Danielle Miller, started emphasizing that we're looking at the possibility of strong to severe storms in South Carolina. Half of the uh, models from uh, Storm Prediction Center and their risk included the northwest half of South Carolina, and then on Tuesday, the uh, eastern half. So the message was already out there, and by Sunday, it was a clear uh, message that this is going to be an event that we're going to see storms on Sunday, probably late morning, that may be strong to severe, but at least the knowledge that there is going to be storms on Sunday, but that's only the first round. The stronger storms and the worst ones are going to be in the overnight hours, and that was the biggest emphasis that we sent the message. And the worst part was waiting. Um, as um, a couple of us were talking about before the show started, uh, the Storm Prediction Center um, alluded to the fact that there were uh, two significant models. One that was indicating that the storms would very likely start entering portions of South Carolina upstate and the high country by late morning and by midday crossing to the areas uh, from northwestern North Carolina into the Piedmont and the PD down to the Midlands into the early afternoon. That would have been the worst case scenario. The evolution of the storms were far greater and the magnitude of the damage would have been far greater. The other model was one that verified, showed that it came in a lot earlier. The problem is that when you have storms that early in the morning, mm. and the first tornado warning actually came out, I believe it was 6.30. Um, that was the tornado warning that was in Richmond and Columbia County in Georgia. And then once it crossed over to South Carolina, it was still warm. At that point, we're already talking about it in earnest that these storms are tornadic one is already confirmed, and this has got a direction that will be impacting part of our Southwest Midland communities. And at that point, things just exploded. The, the one interesting thing that we did 
watch very carefully um, and with, uh, with great concern was when the uh, tornado was confirmed crossing out of Richmond County, crossing into uh, Richmond County, Georgia, into Aiken County, South Carolina. Within three or four scans for about 12 minutes, we noticed that the inflow was pushing at about probably 95 to 100 miles an hour, but there was no debris ball. Once it got uh, right along the county line of Barnwell and Aiken County, there was no doubt a debris ball. Within a span of five to seven minutes, two scans later, we now see two debris balls. And I mentioned on chat, I was like, uh, guys, do we have twins? And they said, we definitely have a TDS on both storms. So now we got a bigger issue. We now have two tornadoes that are heading almost in the same direction, at least parallel. And uh, the message is already out. You have to take your tornado precautions. The craziest part about this is that, and I'm sure a lot of the meteorologists here will say, Rob alluded to it, this is something that does not happen in the Carolinas. Um, we're well known for the Carolinas to have the type of uh, tornadic event that's low cape high shear versus when you go out into the central and southern plains is the exact opposite. But we've had our fair share of tornadoes that have been low cape high shear, but nothing to this magnitude. I'm really hoping that the viewers were prepared. Uh, unfortunately, we had two deaths out of the EF3 tornado that went through Western Orangeburg County in the community of Livingston. Uh, and as well as seven injuries. But this happened at least later in the morning. If this happened two or three hours earlier, the result could have been significantly different. Efren, uh, you were talking about the twins. There's uh, some speculation on Twitter. And after looking at the radar scans, it could have kind of been like a Fujiwara effect. Like they were kind of dancing around each other. Uh, any comment on that? That's a good possibility. Keep in mind that the only data that we can go off since we can't really go off of any uh, visual satellite is off of the radar, but that is the possibility. However, both of the debris balls were running parallel to each other, probably about seven to eight kilometers apart, but they were going, you know, directionally. Usually when you see a future effect, you'd see the debris balls that are actually dancing around each other. They really weren't dancing around, they were running parallel. So at the very least, we know that this was two confirmed separate tornadoes. Was the debris ball and eventually the second one from the original tornado that came out of Aiken? Because the deadly tornado actually originated in, in Northern Bamberg County, uh, excuse me, Northern Barnwell County, then eventually moved into Southwest Orangeburg County. But just as the initial tornado dissipated, the other one continued going. So I don't believe in my best experiences that that was the Fujiwara effect. It could have been, but I didn't see enough motion between the two TDSs to um, facilitate that idea. Yeah, definitely a, a busy morning for you guys. I want to bring in Kendra Kent. This is kind of where all, all as the storm system moved in. Uh, kind of hit her area first. Kendra, uh, first of all, we hope we can see you or hear you. Or hear you. <laughs> Sorry, uh, Scotty. <laughs> you're fine. We can hear you now. And, and uh, I, I just want to ask you, I know uh, you guys kind of started, uh, started the live coverage first when these storms first moved in. Mm -hmm. uh, tell us a little bit about uh, your morning and, and how things went there in the Greenville area. Well, you know, I, I feel like I learned a lot from this particular outbreak. And can everybody hear me okay? Mm -hmm. Yes. 
Okay, good. Sorry you can't see me. Um, I hooked up to a computer that doesn't have a camera, apparently. Anyway, um, no, we started the coverage a little after midnight. We had a rogue warning. It was a essentially a shower that just started rotating. You could tell how much dynamically was going on in the atmosphere. I mean, it was just things were beginning to blow up. So I think I knew from about 1230 in the morning that we were going to have a very, very long night. Um, we ended up with an EF3 tornado. And as we were talking about earlier, that's incredibly rare in South Carolina, especially in the upstate. I feel like we get wedged in so much with cool air. It's so, it's so rare we can have all of this come together to produce such an event. Um, and this was the biggest in the upstate, the most, the strongest since 1994. Um, it hit Seneca. Um, we were on air with the storm as it moved into Stevens County, Georgia. And I had a unique experience with it because my parents live in Seneca. And that was probably the first time I had to cover a storm while I was slightly emotionally distraught. Um, and I had Isaac Williams, who's also on the on here. You just can't, he, he's also uh, without a video. Um, but he was pointing out the TDS. And as soon as I saw that, I got that panicked feeling. You know, I started breathing a little heavy. I thought, oh my gosh, how am I going to get through this? Um, but we did. And luckily my parents were fine. But I, I'm sure many of you have been through that because we've all, you know, many of us have lived in these areas for a long time and you get personally impacted by these storms. But, um, but what I learned the most is not to underestimate the timing of something. I feel like I didn't write this event off but I wasn't necessarily expecting anything like this, given the time it was coming in, 3 to 6 a.m. I mean, who expects an EF3 tornado to rip through the heart of your area at 3.30 in the morning? And mostly we get these QLCS lines that produce these brief EF0, EF1 tornadoes. That's what we're used to. And seeing something like that and tracking something like that was a true first for me. And, um, you know, it was just... A million different emotions all at once that's for sure. Uh, Kendra uh, since you said Isaac's there I'll, I'll pose this to both of you guys um, both of y'all uh, you had this coming through uh, the rogue cell and then like the heart of this event was when people were actually asleep you know 12 1 2 o'clock in the mm -hmm. morning uh, talk about how you guys were able to message before the event and um, you know with this being uh, this late, talk about your schedule too, because I know uh, I was watching uh, the, the coverage in Chattanooga and hearing of the, the major damage that happened there. And I'm like, man, I've got to get a little bit of sleep before this comes into our area. So kind of talk about, about that, because I know a lot of us were watching beforehand to just see what was coming our way. Let's see. Is Isaac's mic up? I think it's muted, but I th we can. Yeah, okay. It's unmuted. It's unmuted. You're, he's good now. Okay. Um, you, you go ahead, yeah, Isaac. So, oh, okay. Uh, thanks for having me briefly. Um, I'm the, one of the morning people, so I'm like almost up past my bedtime here. But uh, <laughs> so um, just to kind of with the messaging and, you know, any rest, unfortunately for me, I have plenty of um, of uh, interest in, in Mississippi and Alabama. That's where I'm from. And, you know, for, for lack of, for whatever reason, a lot of people still ask me, you know, about the weather there and they depend on me and that's great. So I didn't actually sleep going into this event. Um, so that's not uncommon for me because I am a severe weather uh, nut, but that being the case, um, 
in terms of messaging, you know, we started talking about it, I think on Wednesday, um, just kind of highlighting the threat for storms that gave people about five and a half days, you know, and of course we started ramping up, you know, the, the wording a little bit more once we got to, you know, Friday and Saturday and, you know, Kendra always, you know, mentioned like when I first was hired here, we do get a lot of wet events and we started that day in the fifties and I'm like, back in my head, you know, I thought, what if the wedge holds and, you know, we, we've, we're going to see, be seen as like hype, you know, hype people. And, you know, that's not what we want, but we don't want severe weather either. Um, so, but we, I think our message was pretty, pretty stern by Sunday morning when we got up and saw they had pulled that enhanced risk over a little bit um, into the upstate, which, you know, I've been here three years, not nearly as long as Kendra, but I think that's only our third, my personal third enhanced risk here. So, you know, I, I knew that I, I see parameters and parameters mean nothing unless you have a storm in them, you know, but I knew with those parameters that we had the potential to have something, you know, fairly unusual happen, but I wouldn't have had the cop. I don't work weekend. So I don't even know if I would have said something about a strong tornado, even the night before. Um, just because it's just so rare to get them here. Yeah, and I think I think just given how late it was at night, and we knew this was likely going to be taking at least some linear form. Yeah, I wasn't expecting that either, and it it really um, it caught us off guard. But to see a TDS like that uh, move through our area, and I know many the rest of you all saw that too as South Carolina meteorologists. I mean, just something you don't see every day, and it kind of takes your breath away. Um, you know, just we're, they're used to that in Alabama, Mississippi. We just don't get that stuff here. Yeah. And then, you know, right after that, um, af- right after the Seneca one had, had briefly lifted right over Clemson, we had the EF2, what ended up being an EF2, another TDS outside of Slater, which that's, you know, almost in the 3000 feet elevation, you know, in the extreme northern part of Greenville County. So that, that debunks the whole tornadoes can't happen in the mountains thing, you know. Definitely. So we we were watching that Evan and I, because um, Evan doesn't live too far from the the, the line there. Uh, one last question, and we'll come back to you guys later on in the show. But uh, at the time, we didn't know how long uh, the tornadoes were on the ground. But I think one of the the tornadoes there in the Greenville uh, Pickens County area was on the ground for around eight miles. So this were not also uh, big tornadoes, but they're also long track tornadoes. Something that we're not too accustomed to as well. Yeah. Again, that was a a huge shocker but when you saw the signatures on radar it was there was no doubt that that was going to be a large tornado and they even put that in the wording of the warning which I was very happy about I feel like that really brought people's attention up and the thing you mentioned earlier too these were happening at 3 30 in the morning probably the worst time a tornado could hit I mean when people are in their deepest sleep um, and, you know, all you can do as a broadcaster is beg people to wake up their kids, get their dog, you know, whatever they need to do, get to their lowest level. Um, and so I feel like this was a one of the scariest nights for our viewers, you know, hands down and no less scary for the rest of the state, of course, but at least it was more toward daybreak for some of you guys. Um, but yeah, for us, it was just the dead of night and we were just hoping that people were heeding the warnings. Right, and yeah, uh, for sure, you know, with that, um, yeah, with that, with the Seneca one, you know, we, we were in a situation where 
um, that the TDS was so strong, so fast. Like it, I don't want to say it came out of nowhere, but like that TDS appeared and it was like violent looking, like on the first scan that I saw. And we were dealing with the situation. Like once it went past Clemson, I, I think we had debris fallout on CC. So we weren't positive that we, it actually wasn't sealed down because it still looked like, you know, something could be there. You thought it was like debris being fanned out or whatever, but you weren't sure, even though the circulation looked a little weaker, but I'm like, we're not going to take any chances with it. You know, obviously the tornado warning was still in effect. And, you know, that was another little unique challenge is that I've never actually dealt with debris fallout before where we said, okay, well, this signature is debris. And yet something similar was happening down the line. And we're like, well, this may be actually debris that's still being lofted, but the tornado's not still down. So it was a very unique situation. And again, Kendra keeps bringing this up. It was in the middle of the night at 3.30 in the morning, you know, but I feel like people were wide awake and they were watching and they were prepared, um, which, which is good. You know, all through the days, you know, we were like, Kendra made a graphic, I think on Thursday that said, what do you need to do? It was just like a simple little headline graphic, but it was like so informative about charging your batteries keeping your phone on not silent if you if you sleep with it on do not disturb you know i remember saying friday morning you know what you can do you can you know sleep with it on loud for one night you know because it can help save your life so it was it was a insane you know again i worked in mississippi i've dealt with you know plenty of tornadoes in my day but yet this is still a first for me as well more of our conversation when the carolina weather group returns after this short break Thanks for staying with us. We'll pick up our conversation now on this week's episode of the Carolina Weather Group. All right, and uh, I'm going to go ahead and, and bring Ed Petrowski from WPDE in Myrtle Beach. And uh, Ed, you know, we saw what looked like the tail end of this Hampton County tornado pop out all the way over at Myrtle's Inlet. Um, Brad Panovich was nice enough to share a link with us. I'm going to pull it up here and share my screen. Uh, let's see if we can get it to work here. And uh, the, the, the tornado that you're seeing here in Hampton County, you know, there's some debate of whether or not it started over on the Georgia side of the Savannah River. But if we look at the, the start of the track and draw it all the way over to where it exited the South Carolina coast here, then we're looking at about 144 to 158 miles, somewhere in that vicinity. And so, you know, we know this continued on maybe up even into the Oak Island area of North Carolina, but it's just... It's just impressive to see the length and, and track of that storm. It did pop out in Myrtle Beach, where one of our weather sensors for Weatherflow uh, got a reading of 114 miles an hour. We had a pressure drop of seven, seven millibars within a one-minute time span. So that reading went up within two to three minutes, um, from 46 to 76 miles an hour to 114. And um, so talk about that area and, and how it affected your viewing uh, portion of that, that area of Myrtle Beach. Um, but for us, you know, considering what happened across the rest of South Carolina, we were relatively unscathed. We had no injuries and no deaths. There was never really any uh, really tight circulation anywhere in our viewing area. We were, of course, watching the ones that were over Orangeburg County uh, and also down near Hampton County in the morning while we were on the air uh, with our regular morning show at five o'clock in the morning and those were the two big storms two supercells that we were watching very carefully knowing that they were heading generally uh, in our direction the one in orangeburg county uh, faded away before it ever got to our viewing area 
but the one in Hampton County that eventually went over Monk's Corner, uh, eventually got into Georgetown County, and they warned for that one where there was uh, EF1 damage done in Sand Pit and Graves. And then you hit a really populated area on the south end of the Grand Strand where Litchfield Beach is located and Polly's Island as well. And they both took uh, a, a hit an EF0, EF1 tornado. There was uh, substantial damage done to trees and even some homes in Litchfield Beach and also in Willbrook. Uh, in fact, one of the things about a lot of people being home is a lot of people took video. So we were able to get pretty good video of at least damage and high wind knocking over trees, but not necessarily a tornado uh, touching down. And then, uh, of course, it went out over the ocean, became a water spout, and that's when it rolled over the uh, Merle's Inlet jetties with uh, the recording of 114 mile per hour winds. And, you know, I look back in that and I think, my goodness, if that was just a couple of miles west of there, we would have had substantial damage on the south end of the Grand Strand. And if it had paralleled the Grand Strand coast, it could have buzzsawed the entire uh, Grand Strand, nearly 60 miles with extensive damage. So we were very fortunate that it actually went out over the ocean. And that was really the only uh, set of tornadoes from that particular supercell that we had in our viewing area. Although I will say in Marlborough County, which is uh, just to the east of Chesterfield County, the northern part of the state, we had a massive microburst of 110 mile per hour winds that did substantial damage in Wallace. And of course, everybody, when they get that kind of wind, thinks it was a tornado. Uh, but in reality, it was a microburst. Although on radar, it did have some rotation. It wasn't very tight there either. But uh, Steve Papp, who works with the National Weather Service in Wilmington, those guys do a phenomenal job. They went out and did uh, the survey yesterday and we're able to pinpoint where they had 80 to 110 mile per hour winds. And you know, typically for us, in the summertime, we get those pulse thunderstorms where we'll get 60, 70, maybe 80 mile per hour winds with a, with a collapsing thunderstorm. But uh, I've, in all the years I've been here, I can't recall one time where we've had a microburst uh, that caused 110 mile per hour winds, but you hear it all the time. They're, they're just as damaging sometimes as, as tornadoes. Wow, that's pretty impressive. Yeah, just think, looking at that, the one at Litchfield, they classified as an EF2. Do you think the Waccamaw River Basin had something to do with, with reforming of that? Or do you think the mechanical features, right, when it came to land, maybe helped with, with um, strengthening or re-intensifying that, that system? Yeah, there's, there's a lot of, I don't know if you want to call it debate, but there's a lot of uh, uh, speculation out there that there could have been some sort of a influence of the ocean, the wind coming in off the ocean at that time perhaps uh, creating some sort of a boundary to help intensify the storm itself. Um, but yeah, it was an EF0 over Litchfield Beach, and then it blew up to an EF2 when it went over uh, the Merles and the Jetty. So it, it got pretty strong fairly quickly. And again, we were lucky that that was over the ocean. Literally, the jetties are only a couple of hundred yards away from very populated areas of Garden City. And uh, we had two different uh, people that have homes there who have their home weather units and they both registered 71 and 72 mile per hour winds respectively. So literally within a couple of hundred yards of where your unit is, we had those measurements. So you can see how tight the uh, wind gradient was between Garden City and the actual jetties themselves. Hey, Ed, there was uh, something, you know, you always try to find something that will make you laugh in, in these um, sad times. And Unfortunately, we had um, some sad times in the Carolinas, but there was a tweet going around of you doing your your broadcast. <laughs> I don't know. I've asked James about it if we can uh, if we can play it. But Here it comes. Uh, all right, I'm gonna let it play, and then I want you to talk about it. Okay. <laughs> rain is located, and we'll zoom that out just a bit. And uh, whoa. whoa, that was a close lightning strike. I don't know if you heard that at home. 
I feel like I need to change a short. Right, I'm pulling the audio back down, but Scotty and Ed, the viewers at home heard it, even though we didn't hear it in our headsets. Uh, Ed, what's going through your head there? Well, you know, we were, we were in a sense, just about ready to wind down. We were getting through this thing, for the most part, relatively unscathed. Our last severe thunderstorm warning was still in effect, but the, uh, the storm was moving out of Horry County. And then there must have been a lightning strike within a couple hundred yards to the station because it was this loud explosion that you, know, you knew what it was, but you're a human being. It freaked me out. And uh, as you saw, um, I kind of ducked thinking something was going on and then... Uh, just use one of my classic lines. I need to change the shorts. Just <laughs> one of those things. And that kind of went around the viewers. A lot of them had recorded it and were sending it to me, uh, letting me know that they thought it was kind of funny. And it's something that, you know, that they needed after a morning like that, being so stressed. And of course, being stressed with COVID-19, uh, it was a little light moment toward the end of the severe weather when we knew we didn't have any injuries, which was a good thing. And of course, nobody was killed either. Always good to have an, a, a funny moment there. So uh, I want to bring it up to Shane. Shane uh, lives just north of the uh, the Myrtle Beach, Wilmington area. Shane, you guys kind of got in on the uh, the tail end as well as the sun was already up. Uh, talk to us about the Newburn Greenville, uh, North Carolina area and what you guys experienced. Yeah, we were kind of uh, late to the party, I guess, compared to everyone else in, re in regards to receiving the storms, but uh, very much like Ed's situation, very thankful and, and blessed really to not have any injuries or fatalities with, with any of our systems. We, we did end up having six confirmed tornadoes. Um, and thankfully for us, the strongest was the EF1 that we had in the Hawes Run area. Um, I believe I've been taking notes here just to make sure it was anywhere from roughly 100 to 110 mile per hour sustained winds. Um, so for us, it was basically like that waiting game where you, you see the line coming. I was actually filling in for our morning meteorologist. Um, he had a vacation day, but he got reeled back in right towards the end of it. Um, so I was basically tracking it all the way since it was in the, in the mountains and just waiting, just holding our breath. Our morning broadcast finished up. Uh, we had declared it a severe weather alert day for our, our station. So we were cutting in. We would normally cut in every hour, um, but our morning meteorologist says, you know what, let's just go ahead and do every half hour. Um, and it was actually very fortunate and wise that we did that because during the half hour cut in at 930, uh, at, with about maybe one minute left in my cut in, our weather radio starts going off in the weather center. And then I said, okay, well, we we're starting now. And we were on for an hour and a half uh, with all of the tornado warnings. There just came a point where when we were swapping off, he would just say, we have four tornado warnings and I'd have to interrupt and say, I'm sorry, no, it, we're at five now. I was like, it just keeps on going back and forth. And it was just a, an, like a straight line. So in our viewer, we're trying to describe it for our viewers. It was almost like a complicated mess. And, and honestly, that's what I started describing it whenever I, we would switch off and I would be on the, the screen. I would just say, I know it is very difficult to kind of pin everything out because every warning was overlapping. And I think with, with my experience with tornadoes, um, with, with coverage I've had, which naturally I've had many, especially with our, our hurricane coverage that we've, we've seen over the years, um, I've never seen that many warnings stacked back to back to back in a straight line. Um, it was fascinating, but also terrifying at the same time because you feel like you need to give equal coverage to each warning in each area in in your in your viewing area um 
even though we knew the strongest one at the time was the one we were seeing to the south simply because it, it had held for the longest amount of time. It, it seemed like it had the strongest signature. Um, looking back on, on social media after everything kind of died down a bit, I was able to see um, what other meteorologists um, from around the country had done and taken screenshots and seeing um, all the, the feedback and all the, the scans of it uh, that we weren't even able to see at the time because we were having to bounce in between six different tornado warnings all at the same time. Um, but looking back on it, it was very clear seeing everyone's screen grabs of the, the tornado warning to the south uh, that that was the strongest one. It had the, the strongest sustained winds, it had the, the longest track um, out of all the, the tornadoes that we were tracking that morning. And Shane, one thing we were noticing because we were watching that storm is it was going through a fairly populated area, Jacksonville. You know, that's probably one of the bigger uh, cities out eastern North Carolina. So I'm sure that was kind of pressing to want to get that information out to, to one of the bigger population areas. Absolutely. Um, and th what was really interesting, something I've never been able to do before while we are um, doing severe weather coverage is to be able to pick up anything too crazy on, on our web cameras. And we did have a webcam uh, situated uh, near the in the Jacksonville area near the, the Freedom Fountains. And um, while we did not see the, the feature at all, you could see it looked like the flags about to be ripped off of the top of the flagpoles. I've never seen um, that before and never been able to capture anything during the height of a storm or during a warning before until this particular system. Uh, so naturally, yes, we did have all that concern because even for our specific station, Jacksonville is a very heavy populated area into which they, they tune into us. They know uh, that we are the closest station to them, so they rely on us heavily. Um, but thankfully, I believe the, the heaviest damage that was sustained in that area was uh, at a hog farm. Uh, so we might have a few pigs that, that won't be tuning into our broadcast next time. Um, but uh, like I said, just very thankful and blessed that we had zero fatalities, zero injuries throughout the entire morning. Shane, I got a good chuckle out of that. Thank you. Um, <laughs> Tim, we still have two areas to cover, Charlotte and Greensboro. So Tim, I want to start off with you. Uh, I know you're just dying to talk. We've had you waiting for 40 some odd minutes now. But you guys did have one tornado in Alamance County. Uh, can you kind of tell us a little bit about that and maybe some of the relief that you felt that there was only one and things weren't quite as bad as they could have been? Yeah, sure. Thanks, guys. Um, so, you know, this kind of thing that we we were tracking for days, all of us were tracking it for days. Uh, it was pretty much anyone, all anyone could talk about for the Easter weekend. So one of the things leading up to it, I kind of sensed from I was kind of trying to read the room and like on my Facebook page and to see where people's heads are at. It really seemed like people were dreading this and they were very freaked out and they really were spooked um, just in the sense of maybe they were stressed out already. I am not a psychologist, but there was just a lot of stress building up. And I think whenever something is coming in the middle of the night, people are are really worried and justifi justifiably so. So one of the things we decided to do is just let them know, like, we're going to be there the whole night because even with, you know, we had the warm front coming through in the afternoon. I'm always worried about those little warm fronts too. You can kind of get little spin ups. So I was there starting at like, 
eight, nine o'clock. And I just stayed till the morning. We had the rest of the morning Mets come in uh, as well to help out. And good thing that we did because, you know, one of the things we just kind of walked people through the night. We would just do Facebook Lives and they would chime in and we would say, everything's still okay. You can go to bed, but make sure you have the phone. And you got to wake up if the warnings are issued. And people really did that. And I think it helped out. But uh, you mentioned we had one confirmed tornado in our area. We had nine tornado warnings. And I had no problem with any of the tornado warnings. And a lot of times I'm complaining in, my, in the back of my head about some of them, right? None of them were, were light tornado warnings at all. There was so much rotation in almost every storm that was pushing across our area. Everyone in this chat knows this. We have a radar issue here. The radar beam is so high. So of course, when we're showing these warnings, it's showing more mid-level rotation. It's not at the ground. Um, so all we can do is say, hey, this storm is spinning like crazy. Uh, our first tornado warning came in at 420 in the morning and we had continuous tornado warnings until seven in the morning. So we were on for a while. Um, with all of those different storms. And it turned out that the last one in Alamance was the one that, um, in fact, was confirmed. And, and we confirmed it on air, too. You know, we were watching it, Taran Kirksey and myself, and, and there was a clear-as-day debris ball just a few scans after the first couplet showed up. So I, I believe they talked about this in South Carolina, too. Some of these, they formed, they came right down, and they did the damage right away. And it was very quick. Uh, and thank goodness, you know, the weather service did a bang up job. They had a warning on it right away. Um, and, and we were just bouncing around, bouncing around. It was a very busy morning. Um, but I think people were very appreciative that we were there the whole time with them, just kind of holding their hand. You know, there's this storm. There's this storm. Here's what you do. Grab the kids, grab the dog, put a helmet on, put shoes on, and get ready to go. And, um, you know, we made through it. Thankfully, there, there weren't many, there were no injuries or fatalities in that one tornado. On the same token, in, a, in the squall line itself, we did have a tree, unfortunately, kill somebody in their home. Um, and, and one of the things with this line that we also tried to do, you have to give the, the, the highlight coverage to the tornado warnings. But this whole squall line, we knew it was capable of putting down 80 plus mile per hour gusts uh, just with all the wind fields. So, so we did try and bounce around and say, hey, you're not in a tornado warning in Guilford here right now, but this line is nasty. So you should probably be in your safe spot too. So it was a very busy morning, but we anticipated it. Everybody in the weather enterprise talked about it for days. People knew about it. And I actually think it's a big success story that in the middle of the night, people were still well prepared and took good action. And the fatalities really, I think, were minimized, at least in the Carolinas, as far as I can tell. And Ted, you're already kind of making my transition easy because the second question I wanted to ask was about, there was some information going around on Facebook before the storm that was a little bit... Um, unsettling for a lot of viewers and it was definitely not accurate information but i know that you were definitely a part of reassuring people reassuring your audience that the storm uh, while yes it was definitely going to be dangerous um this is not something that they couldn't handle uh, what talk about the importance of the trust that your viewers have in you uh and how you're the source where they get all of the information from um, yeah, yeah I mean, social media is a blessing and it's a curse, right? Like it, it gives good information and it gives bad. There was some post floating around out there that was advertising potential for EF5 tornadoes in North Carolina, even though we've we've not had one before on record. But but people were freaked out initially. Uh, we, of course, saw the damage in Mississippi and
Alabama. Uh, that can freak people out here when they know it's coming our way. So, you know, one of the things I tried to do in the days up leading to the event is, you know, everyone's freaked out right now just in life. I, I don't get freaked out by weather. I'd get freaked out a little bit about this pandemic, if I'm being honest. So one of the things I told them was just saying, hey, you know, we're living in crazy times. We don't know exactly what's going to happen with daily life with this virus and stuff, but we know how to handle severe weather. We have the technology. We do this every year. Um, we got this. It could be bad, but we know what to do. And if it is bad, we're going to let you know about it. We're not going to go crazy. We're just going to let you know where the storm is, where it's going, what you should do, and what to do next time. Because there's always a next time with weather. This is not abnormal, really. Um, we had a lot of tornadoes, but you know, one year ago, basically in April, North Carolina had 12 tornadoes also. So this is not really that different. We do know what to do. And and I think that was reassuring to folks just to let them know, hey, okay, well, they're they're used to this. They're gonna keep us covered. And and that's really the the whole reason why we're here. We're not here for the sunny days like today. I could not show up and it would be fine. But you know, Monday, we're, we're pretty important to keep folks calm and hopefully encourage them uh, to make the right choices. And I think a lot of people did. Absolutely, yeah, Scotty. And so Tim, talking about radar coverage, that brings me to Mr. Brad Panovich. And Brad, unfortunately, we had a tornado kind of go under the radar like that little pun there uh, in the Charlotte area. So uh, we had one in, in Anson County, but uh, you know, you've been on the show several times talking about our radar gaps and this one kind of bit us uh, in the behind because we didn't catch this one. Yeah, and I, I'll give a little bit of a pass to the Weather Service on this one because I think uh, Tim brought up a good point. Something we were doing on the air Monday morning was we were telling everybody to treat the severe thunderstorm warnings like tornado warnings on Monday morning because every severe thunderstorm warning had a tornado tag in it and we knew the environment that these storms had. I didn't want people near a window or near the outside walls with straight line winds on Monday morning. So we actually, for the first time in a long time, I, I basically treated every severe thunderstorm warning like a tornado warning, but you're right. There was no warning with the two tornadoes we had touched down in Anson County. Um, even though in hindsight, looking back in with the Raleigh radar, there were signs of rotation, but I mean, we were all looking at radar Monday. I could have issued a hundred different tornado warnings on some of these. It, it was just, you knew there was probably a tornado in there. There were several times I saw little couplets trying to spin up where you saw that, that inflow notch starting to increase and you're waiting for the, the outflow to kind of kick in and it never did. So, you know, there probably was numerous uh, small spin ups in there that we never recognized, but it does, it does highlight the same issue, right? You know, we've had this huge radar hole over the Charlotte metro area that goes up into the Greensboro metro and really out towards the Fayetteville area. It's kind of that triangle of just horrible radar coverage. So the Raleigh office, you know, they're trying to issue a warning in Anson County, which is basically closer to Charlotte than it is Raleigh. And the two radars they're looking at is Raleigh, <laughs> Greer, and a terminal Doppler at Charlotte Douglas, which doesn't actually have the range to make it into Anson County. So um, it's a tough situation in a morning like that. Unfortunately, that tornado did damage about 10 homes. Um, it was an EF2 and we had several farms damaged. So it did quite a bit of damage, actually picked up a couple mobile homes, but it does highlight the issue. Um, I just I just hope that at some point, I think this COVID-19 thing has kind of set back our, our, our North Carolina radar project to do some private public partnerships but this, this problem's not gonna go away. And hopefully in the very near future, we'll have, uh, the goal is to have three C-band million watt dual pole radars 
uh, spaced out over the, that radar gap um, to enhance radar coverage going forward. But man, that was, you know, every time this happens, I'm like, I wish I had a better look. I wish I had, especially that time of the morning <laughs> when you know you just, no one's spotting these things. You need that radar coverage. Um, and it really, it really makes it difficult. And I'll just say one of the things about the coverage that morning, everybody knew this was coming. The only messaging issue that I had with this whole event was because of the timing being between day one and day two outlooks from SPC, there was a lot of disconnect about this thing, like skipping over us. And I, the one thing I try to do Sunday night and Monday morning was like, Hey, you got to understand the day one outlook goes from 8 a.m. Sunday to 8 a.m. Monday. And then the new one comes out for Tuesday. It's 8 a.m. Tuesday to 8. And so it looked like it was going to jump over the Piedmont, but it really was just an artifact of it being right at that time of day between the two outlooks. So that was the only issue I had communicating. Um, a lot of people thought this was going to happen on Sunday and it really was a Monday morning event. So uh, from that standpoint, I'm glad a lot of people paid attention, but the timing was a real problem because of the way the outlooks are issued from SBC. Ideally, we'd like to have had it from midnight to midnight. I think that would have had a be much better perspective of what's going on. Uh, for the viewers, uh, a few asking about radar. For those who may not be familiar with radar, tell us why the Charlotte area, the Greensboro area, Fayetteville area is kind of in that hole. What, what, why does the radar miss those areas? Oh man, we this it, it's a lot of politics. I'm not going to lie to you. This when the when the weather service was reorganized, for whatever reason. Charlotte, which is, you know, I'm, I'm biased. I live here, but it is the biggest city between Atlanta and Washington, D.C., all right? It does not have a radar within 50 miles of the biggest population center in this part of the country. Um, and that doesn't just affect us. It affects Tim up in Greensboro and Winston-Salem. It affects Hickory, Boone. It affects a large area. And so there's some little stop gaps. And I hear this all the time from people, well, you got a terminal Doppler radar. I'm like, all right, terminal Doppler is a Band-Aid. It's like a little tiny Band-Aid. That helps fix a little bit of the issue. But, you know, if I had to tell another meteorologist, hey, I'll take your 88D out and put a C-band, you know, non-dual pole radar there to take you up. They would never want that, right? They would want an 88D dual band radar. Um, and so it, it's just a Band-Aid approach. And we just have a huge issue with it. And it, it's, it's unique to Charlotte. We are the biggest city in the country that does not have a radar within 50 miles of the city. Um, so luckily local governments are recognizing this problem. We've brought it to their attention. I think everyone brings up their phone app and goes, oh, we've got radar coverage. A lot of people don't understand that radar are like cell phone towers. The farther away you are from the, from the dish, the worse your reception is. And so in Charlotte, we got this big population center and our closest radar or set cell phone tower is in Greer, South Carolina. So it makes it incredibly difficult. It's not that we don't have any coverage. I don't want to make it feel like, you know, we're in this giant hole. We just have degraded coverage. We have really poor coverage. We have one bar on our cell phone. We want five bars. So what we're trying to do is get that radar closer um, because the radar beam, as you see in the picture right there, uh, thanks, James, um, the radar beam goes in a straight line, but the earth curves. So by the time the radar beam gets to Charlotte, depending on which part of Charlotte you're in, it's at 8,000 to as much as 10,000 feet above our heads. Tornadoes happen down in the lowest 1,000 or lower. So missing a lot of these tornadoes is a problem with the radar gap. And so I hope going forward that this problem will get solved. Um, I, for years, we, we tried doing this back 10 years ago and, and we went through federal 
you know, issues and it's just dealing with the government sometimes incredibly difficult <laughs> to get things. But now that we have this private public partnership, it's the closest we've been to solving this problem because we've got local, state and even private uh, entities involved and the data is going to be public and free for everybody. Speak, speaking of, uh, of um, partnerships, I wanted to ask uh, Brad and, and Shane and Tim, uh, unfortunately, a lot of our other guests had to jump off because they have a 10 p.m. newscast. But in this era of COVID-19, um, you guys aren't in the weather center with your fellow meteorologists. You're doing a lot of work from home. How was the communication preparing for this event? Was it was it any different? I mean, I know you wasn't personally beside the meteorologist, but was the communication still there? Was there anything that you, you think maybe have kind of done went better or, or not as, as good? I mean, any comments on that? Uh, we over communicated. And the only reason that I really over communicated was, was watching um, Ryan Vaughn in Jonesboro a couple of weeks ago, work from home and cover a tornado there. And I thought, I gave me a little sigh of relief saying it could be done, but they still had somebody in studio. So we talked a lot over the weekend. We had probably two or three Zoom calls over the weekend talking about coverage. And I said, it, you know, if this was if this was not COVID-19, I would be in the studio right now. And luckily my general manager news director said, you know what, we want you in the studio too. So for the first time in a month, I was actually in the studio um, instead of home. And I, I worked in the morning show. Normally my, I'm an, an evening shift person. Um, but I came in and tag team with Larry. We did do social distancing. We never crossed paths. We stayed away. I stayed in one location, which unfortunately meant I didn't get to go to the key wall, but I could be in the weather center with a standing shot um, and do it. So I think in, 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 in the answer to your question, Scotty, we actually over communicated probably more so than we ever had because we knew the logistics of this was going to be really problematic. Yeah, just to echo that, you know, we did the similar thing. We had the fun part about planning is you get to be on Zoom calls with your boss like every other day, right? So we had a lot of Zoom calls just like this. And it made planning a little bit more more tricky because we really had to to advocate for the necessity of being in the studio. You know, and, and it's not just a presentation thing, like that's somewhat cosmetic, but you know, I don't have a generator at my house. None of the folks on our weather team do. So that was really the thing. You know, what if and we have three folks working, but it could sure happen that all of us lose power. So we really needed to be there. But when we were, we we had, I was at the, our, we have a separate room key wall. I was there. I didn't talk uh, to you anybody. Can, you can see Ruben uh, is And zooming. then in the studio, Taran Kirksey was there in front of a monitor wall with a computer with our graphics. And we had another meteorologist at home do, just doing like this and Facebook and stuff. So it really worked out well, but it was more planning and, you know, just jumping through all the hoops that we all have to do just to go to the grocery store or something like that now. Yeah, I think um, kind of just like adding on top of that, it's if the, this situation has brought anything, it's it's teaching everyone, you know, in a communication field, how to communicate even more or the importance of communicating more. Um, in our case, we are still fully broadcasting from our station. We don't work from home. I'll work from I'm the I typically will do noon shows twice a week and then I do double shifts on the weekend, all of our morning and all of our evening shows. So I'm usually the only one in the, the station for the meteorologists on Saturdays and Sundays anyway. So I was closely monitoring it. And whenever I, I saw it on one of my, my weekday shifts, I think I had sent in an email out and um, said, I, I think we should go ahead and just start having a plan in place. This is our first time trying it with social distancing. So I think it's even more important that we start planning further in advance. Um, 
And I, I just think these are times like this where you do learn how crucial communication is between a team. And I think it really applies for all fields, not just, not just our specific industry. Um, we, had, we started it with an email chain. Uh, we did not do Zoom conference calls because I don't like my employer to know how many times I'm wearing pajamas when I'm on the call. So it is all on the phone only. Uh, but at the end of the day, it, it, you're, you're keeping in touch with them. You are making sure that there's consistent um, points that are going to every single one at every level so that everyone is on the same page. Yeah, I was just gonna... I was going to say real quick, Tim, we had that same issue. That was our biggest concern was the generator issue. Um, yeah. You know, I, I have a great setup here. I, I'm great. But man, if I lose power, um, out of luck. <laughs> um, and, you know, I have backup for my router, um, but I don't have backup power to my computer or backup power uh, to any of the lights. So that that was that was a big concern. And I thought for sure with just the wind field that we were going to have trees and power lines down all over the place. So we would lose power. So. Yeah, that was an easy call for us. And um, it was it, honestly, it was kind of nice to be in the station. Not that I wanted to be covering severe weather at two o'clock in the morning, but man, it wasn't nice. That's the first time I saw my morning meteorologist in a month. So yeah. <laughs> it was it was really cool to be in there. <laughs> One weather thing, actually, you know, the surprising part, we talk about how many tornadoes there were. We kind of expected a lot of tornadoes. Um, the fact that the wind field didn't materialize as much in regular severe thunderstorms, I thought was surprising. There wasn't a lot of widespread damage in the squall line. There was a lot, but not as much as I thought there maybe could have been. Yeah, I agree. So, uh, only thing I'll say is that, and I'll give a shout out to Shay and Weatherflow because I have two Weatherflow stations on my roof. I had 30 minutes of continuous gust over 50, which was the highest uh, sustained gust above 50 since probably Hurricane Michael came through here. Um, I mean, I've, I've had those things for two hurricanes passing overhead, or at least the remnants, and that was by far the highest. Um, so yeah, it was really impressive. And what happened in our viewing area was we had a we had a lot of wake up calls. People just heard that roaring sound of the wind and the rain hitting their windows, and people were freaking out. They woke up, and so it was easy for me to get people to act because it was so loud. It woke people up from a sound sleep. That sound, and um, we had a lot of people sheltering in their bathroom for these straight line winds, but. Yeah, I'm surprised we didn't have more damage to him, but I was really impressed with the data from my roof. I was, I looked at it and I'm like, I actually had a camera up there that swung around and broke off and I had to fix it again because my house got hit by a tornado back in February. So um, oh, cool. it's, it, and, and I had a 71 monar wind gust with that, that storm. So it's been crazy having uh, all these events at my house and having this data now <laughs> collecting from my house. My wife's texting me. She's like, the kids are freaking out. Should we go downstairs? I'm like, yes, go downstairs. <laughs> Well, Brad, what a way to QC those stations with a with a camera breaking, right? And then the stations are still standing. But I mean, that's pretty impressive if you think about the mechanical features over land, how how trees and other homes block wind, and you're still getting gusts like that. You could almost assume that just above homes, right at the treetop level, probably several not stronger just because of those those um, mechanical features. But yeah, you know, even here along the coast, I, just like Tim said, I was surprised we didn't see a lot of those you know those gust fronts or um, there's really strong convergences right ahead of the storm. So it never really materialized here. I mean, we got 30, I think 30 to 40 knots and then maybe one little spike upwards, but we didn't see any of these big blasts of wind like we normally do here at the coastline where those energies just drop out of the storm. And then we get a, a long line of um, really strong wind. So 
And that was a good thing because it was less damage over the entire area, even though we did have one tornado along the coastline, immediate coastline, and uh, even one just inland. But, um, you know, a lot of folks just saw a lot of um, heavy rain, lightning, and just some gusty wind at times. It wasn't terrible. So, I mean, there, there's a little bit of um, reprieve from that storm, at least here along the immediate South Carolina coast, except for Merle's Inlet area and Litchfield. Yeah, so today's date, I think, is kind of significant, too. The initial thing we were going to air today was going to be about the um, 2011 uh, tornado outbreak that everybody really uh, thinks about when they think about the strongest storm system maybe they've lived through or seen. Um, you know, we chose to do this instead because this was such a significant severe weather outbreak. Um Going kind of back to you, Brad, and anyone else who wants to talk about it, is there any sort of feedback that you're receiving from the public that this is going to be kind of the new thing in their heads as, as, as the biggest severe weather threat that they've seen? Or uh, how do you think this compares in, as far as response to um, what we kind of saw on uh, April 16th, 2011? I remember that April well, because that, that is the highlight of that month, but there were four separate significant severe weather events back in April. We had a derecho, we had baseball size hail, and we had two, we had the tail end of the Tuscaloosa tornado outbreak actually affect the Carolinas. And then April 16th, which I remember that night because I stayed up all night long and watched that line of supercells pass over Charlotte, not touch down. And then immediately as the sun came up, start spinning. But I think what helped us out on Monday, two things. One, COVID-19, everybody's home. They, they're, they're sheltering in place already. But two was our tornado outbreak back in early February. Um, that was still fresh in a lot of people's minds. We had significant tornadoes that morning, and that wasn't too long ago. And that was in, that was in Charlotte. That was, you know, we had EF1 damage across a big chunk of, of South Charlotte, including my backyard. So I think that in the back of people's minds, helped. And, and anybody who's worked in emergency management or done this, you know, the level of preparedness is only as good as your memory of the last disaster. And in this case, having that last disaster kept people prepared. And so they were kind of ready for this. Yeah, for here, you know, this one is not going to be remembered for years for most of the Piedmont area, uh, and at least near the triad, I wouldn't say, except for the folks who actually were in the, the tornado path in Alamance County. Uh, just to add to this time of year, it's always very busy. Uh, two years ago today um, is the anniversary of the Greensboro tornado, which is still so fresh. You know, we had a reporter do a story today, how is East Greensboro doing? Um, the answer is, you know, still not great. Unfortunately, um, it was a really rough urban tornado, a strong EF2 that came right through the city, stayed on the ground for 30 miles all the way up basically toward the Virginia border. Um, and that was just two years ago. So for a lot of folks, that's still what they remember, or maybe it's, it's always very personal. So if you're in high point, you remember the high point tornado in 2010, right? It just depends on who you are and where you've lived. Um, um, for me, that April 16th event is still, you know, way up here and everything else is way down. I was working in Wilmington, but that thing was was another level. And that year was just another level of severe weather. And I'll just add my own commentary to that. It was a year ago that we had a tornado outbreak here in the Carolinas. I don't even remember the number. But a year later, our thought is already bouncing back to 2011 and not a year ago. 
Yeah, that was 12 and it was Good Friday. I remember that very clearly. You're right. Scotty, hey, I think that was the first time you yeah, sought shelter yeah. in your... I, yeah, I, I remember doing that, but I couldn't remember what date it was. Like, I forgot two years ago. I knew the Greensboro tornado, but I, I didn't know it was today's date. That's... Monday, Monday the 13th is my son's birthday. And I remember That's on his right. first birthday, we were doing severe weather coverage. And on his second birthday, we were doing severe weather coverage. Yeah, I was uh, I was in, in the basement live on this show when that happened. So, yeah, crazy times. But anyways, guys, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, as Tim was talking about, I'll go ahead and kind of let the secret out of the bag. We pre-recorded. Uh, the April or April 16, 2011 look back. So next week we're going to be airing that. So you'll see Tim back next week on our show. Uh, he'll be with us with a, a lot of other uh, great meteorologists who uh, kind of look back uh, over that event. So uh, we just hope all those, especially uh, who are affected by this tornado, this tornado outbreak, uh, our thoughts and prayers are with you guys, and, and hopefully you'll you'll recover quickly. And uh, like Tim and Brad has said, you know, this is this is the peak season for severe weather uh, in the Carolinas. So uh, we'll continue to monitor the uh, weather for the rest of the month and even into May is, uh, is really kind of a high peak for, for severe weather. So we appreciate you joining us tonight. Big thank you to all of our, um, our guests tonight. This was a last minute show and uh, we got coverage from every market except the Raleigh market. But I don't really think there was much going on at, at in, uh, severe weather-wise with tornadoes in that market. So we appreciate um, everyone coming on tonight, and uh, we will see you back here next Wednesday night for another edition of the Carolina Weather Group, and we hope you have a safe and happy weekend.